0: close now ooh, 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 almost just a turn here we go oh yeah this is the place lots of um clump of cell signs god hates the hands that shed innocent blood Hi. Hey, i don't think i want to talk to you no thank you that's nice wow with the body cams even Aggressive, very aggressive. No thanks, I'm not interested. Wow, thank something. My name is Allison Case. I'm a family doctor and a future abortion provider. Over the next few months, I'll be visiting lots of states and talking with lots of abortion providers and advocates about the restrictions that patients face in their state and what they think will happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned in the upcoming Supreme Court session. Abortion access is under attack. We've seen increasingly severe restrictions passed across the country, but abortion is never going away. It's an essential part of healthcare and a human right. Join me in my travels and see what we can learn together about abortion access and how we can continue to make this essential part of healthcare accessible for all people. Hi everybody, Allison here, coming to you from the Scamp, as always. I just got back from Wyoming, where I spent a lot of time in Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons, and it was fantastic. Really great interviews with some providers there in Jackson, so heads up for that. But today, we're gonna talk about Michigan. So that audio you heard was real-life audio of me when I drove up to the clinic that I visited outside Detroit, Northland Family Planning Center, I have the privilege of interviewing the director of the Northland Family Planning Center, Renee Chilion, as well as Laura Chilion, who is the director of advocacy and development for Northland Family Planning, and Dr. Razelle Riemann, who is a provider who works at Northland Family Planning, among other places. But yes, as you did hear Lots of protesters out there. Turns out those protesters were not even from Michigan, some of them, which is a little crazy, but I guess it's relatively common. So it was a crew of people that I think they were from Arizona or something, and this is like their summer vacation. They like run around and protest at clinics. Anyway, in this episode, you'll hear from all those folks I mentioned. We'll talk a little bit about the aggressive anti-abortion movement within Michigan, as well as other states, and we'll talk about restrictions in Michigan and what will happen if Roe falls. If you haven't listened to my first episode on Indiana, my home state, please do check it out. It's available now on all podcast platforms. Uh, If you do get a chance to listen on Apple Podcasts, if you could leave me a rating, that helps other people find the podcast and can help us spread uh, more information to new abortion advocates out there. In addition, you can follow me on Instagram at for the love of Roe podcast. I love feedback, so if you have any, please feel free to direct message me on Instagram. Before we dive into our Michigan interviews, I want to cover a a basic concept that we didn't get to in our last episode. That concept is something that really should be the foundation for anyone who's working in the reproductive health advocacy space, and that is this idea of reproductive justice. So reproductive justice is a, a framework, a mindset, a an approach to advocacy around reproductive health care that is really comprehensive and was founded and continues to be spearheaded by women of color and indigenous women. I'm gonna get a little nerdy on you here and read you an exact definition from an essay by Loretta Ross, who, in addition to being one of the founders and creators of this concept of reproductive justice, was the founder of Sister Song, an organization that was founded by women of color and indigenous women, and they seek to promote reproductive justice through advocacy, education, and other activities. So really fantastic organization. Please do check them out. I'm going to post the link to their website in the show notes, so you can go there, check them out, and learn more. So this definition is from an essay by Loretta Ross called, What is Reproductive Justice? It says, reproductive justice is the complete physical, mental, spiritual, political, social, and economic well-being of women and girls based on the full achievement and protection of women's human rights. It goes on to say that this definition, as outlined by Asian Communities for Reproductive Justice, offers a new perspective on reproductive issues advocacy, pointing out that for indigenous women and women of color, it is important to fight equally for, number one, the right to have a child, number two, the right not to have a child, and number three, the right to parent the children we have, as well as to control our birthing options, such as midwifery. So that's the formal definition, and what that means in practice for us as abortion advocates and possibly abortion providers is that when we think about abortion access, we should be thinking about it as part of a larger movement for reproductive autonomy in general. And when we talk about reproductive autonomy, we're talking about it in such a way that we're recognizing that things like structural racism, poverty, that there are larger forces that have historically and currently been at work to create barriers for people. It means that when we talk about access to abortion, we're also thinking about, okay, does this person have access to birth control? Does this person have access to a safe community in which to raise their child? Does this person face structural racism that's preventing them from accessing services? So it's all about putting any reproductive health care issue that you're working on in a larger context of larger forces of oppression. I think it's an especially important concept for right now because we're in a time when white supremacy is becoming more and more prevalent in our society. We have a president that makes it easy for people who are spouting hateful speech to be normalized. So I think that it's especially important right now for us as advocates to recognize that A movement for abortion access is not a movement on its own. It's not necessarily just pro-life, pro-choice. Abortion access is part of a larger movement for reproductive health autonomy. I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Razelle Riemann, who I mentioned earlier, about reproductive justice and how she sees it impacting her life and her practice.
1: Well, (laughs) like I said, I think the Sister song framework is very important, and I think I never really thought about the having children part of it, but I I started thinking about more a little bit, you know, more deeply, more recently. And I thought about, like, I think previously in the past, I thought, oh, it makes sense medically doesn't cover IVF. And then I began thinking about that because, you know, as, I don't know if as a physician, I think you're indoctrinated and trained into this very supremacist, oppressive mentality and you really have to like work to overcome this training you don't even realize this happens to you but I thought maybe I'm thinking about it I said what does that mean does it mean that if you're poor you don't have the right to have children and I said that's that's not fair you know so it's the rights to have children and that that extends to many different you know areas such as IBS, such as you know having support for women that have children you know in terms of free early childhood
0: education and quality Goals and things like that so yeah really cool concept really important concept this idea that when we talk about ourselves as abortion access advocates we're talking about it within the larger framework of justice with the idea that we are working towards the right for people to have children to not have children and to take care of those children in a safe and nurturing environment it isn't in the scope of this podcast and I'm certainly not expert enough to do this but we we can't really cover reproductive justice as deeply as I might like. I'm going to again put some links in the show notes, so a link to Sister Song, I'll link to the collection of essays that I quoted from. And yeah, I encourage you to check out those resources. We'll talk more in the rest of this episode about links between reproductive justice and challenges around abortion access for women of color specifically in Michigan, but I think also in ways that are are becoming apparent across the country. The links between white supremacy and the anti-abortion movement and, again, yes, struggles that patients are facing every day. So please do check out those resources and, yeah, start considering your advocacy in the context of reproductive justice. Super important. We'll go ahead and move on now to talk more specifically about Michigan. The state of Michigan encompasses territory previously and currently under control of the Potawatomi, Ottawa, Chippewa, and Sauk tribes. I had the opportunity to talk with Renee Chillian, the director of the Northland Family Planning Center, about abortion access in Michigan. You
2: know, Michiganians are famous for
0: showing you our hand.
2: You know, the Detroit metropolitan area has an adequate number of clinics, and as you go west across the state, There is a clinic in Kalamazoo, and there is a clinic in Grand Rapids. So that takes you across the state. As you go north, there is a clinic in Flint, and there are two clinics in Flint and one in Saginaw, I think is the way it is. But that's going north. That's probably an hour and 15 minutes north of here. Planned Parenthood has a medication abortion clinic, I believe, in Traverse City, but that's it. So if you live in a rural area, you you have to drive.
0: For those people who are not from Michigan or the Midwest, you may become a little confused. Probably even if you're not from the Midwest, you've had somebody from Michigan come up to you and be like, yeah, here's where I'm from and like show you on their hand. So raise up your, your right hand, palm facing you. Detroit is somewhere close to you know, the base of your thumb, that is the eastern side of the state, the western side being towards your pinky. What is suspiciously amiss from this map is the UP, so I'm a little biased because that's where I spent uh, my clinical years of medical school and I, I love it very much, but that is the Upper Peninsula. It uh, extends over from Wisconsin, but it is indeed a part of Michigan. So if you hold your left hand, put it horizontally, palm still facing you on top of your right hand with your thumb sticking up there's your up so there you go orientation to the hand map of Michigan very exciting uh, Renee did mention that in Michigan one of the issues is that in the northern part of the lower peninsula and then in the upper peninsula it's more difficult to access abortion due to long travel distances so She did not mention there is a Planned Parenthood in Marquette, Michigan, which is in the Upper Peninsula, that does offer medication abortions. But again, if you are over the 10-week gestation limit and you live in the Upper Peninsula, you're going to have to go either to Wisconsin or downstate to Michigan, and that's six hours of driving minimum, often more than that. So there are definitely areas of the state that are somewhat remote when it comes to abortion access. Now, Renee has been the director of Northland Family Planning Centers in Michigan for many years, but her involvement in the abortion access movement is very personal. She actually shared with me that she did have an illegal abortion back before Roe v. Wade, before 1973, and she shared that experience with me as well as her experience working with a physician who performed abortions before Roe v. Wade. First of all, I
2: I had an illegal abortion so when I was 15, and while I didn't talk about it for more than 20 years, it certainly was on my mind when I had the chance to work an abortion. I mean, my abortion was dangerous, it was secretive, it was illegal, it was degrading, and we had nowhere for support if we needed it.
0: And as I mentioned, Renee goes on to explain that, in part because of her own personal experience, she sought out a job working with a provider who provided support for women who had had abortions. Initially, there was no place for this provider to legally perform abortions, but then New York passed a law, this is prior to Roe v. Wade, making abortion legal. So this is Renee talking about her experience after abortion became legal in New York.
2: Then when the law changed in New York, my boss applied for a license, and when he got it, he opened a clinic in Buffalo because from Detroit, it's less than a four-hour drive going through Canada. Hmm. And of course, physicians couldn't advertise at the time. So he had made a relationship with a man who was an advertising executive who was referring patients to New York. And while that was illegal to have any sort of fee-splitting arrangement, I don't don't know exactly what their arrangements were, but um, this individual started doing advertising. And when I say advertising, I mean leafleting cars Hmm. with little cards that said legal abortions for women, stickers in bathroom stalls, in the malls, in bars, in any place that women would go to, And women started calling him. Hmm. And I don't know how women found him because they couldn't put anything in the phone book from other states. I, at that point, um, one, I was very young. And two, there were just so many patients. So we saw women. We flew to Buffalo on Friday morning. Um, There's a small airport near here. He owned... A, a private plane that was about a six seater and so the pilot went with us although he was a pilot he didn't want to take any chances so the pilot the doctor myself and sometimes the doctor's wife and we saw patients from a six state area canada we saw more than 100 patients a day wow. we left at like three or four in the morning on friday we got there before around six drove to the clinic and there were always patients waiting for us. Patients who had driven, hitchhiked, taken, you know, they took a plane. Some of them bought one-way tickets and then didn't know how they were going to get home. But there were always so many patients, and we saw them on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. There was not a weekend that I didn't have women sleeping in my room because they had hitchhiked or bought one-way tickets.
0: So Renee's story really moved me. I just, I can't imagine hitchhiking to get an abortion, getting a one-way ticket to get an abortion, Uh, but I think this is what we are looking at in the future if Roe is gutted or if Roe is completely overturned. I think it's really important to understand what things were like before Roe v. Wade, before 1973. Having said that, Michigan, though currently Roe is still standing, Michigan has a number of restrictions, just like many states across the country. And I did talk with Renee about those restrictions in Michigan. Well,
2: we actually have an entire page in our chart Uh, that's titled Michigan Laws, and we go through them with each patient. So I'm going to try to remember what all of them are. I I mean, so I'm going to go in order. Um, the first one was the cutoff of Medicaid funding. So there's no public assistance. Those It is supposed to cover abortions for rape and incest, and we almost never get paid. It pens and pens and pens and pens until we give up, and we've stopped taking it unless they the patient is in a contracted managed care and they are pretty good about keeping their word and paying. And then we got a parental consent law, Um, We have a good judicial bypass system set up for the Detroit metropolitan area. Women out state would still have to travel down to the Detroit metropolitan area to get a judicial bypass Mm -hmm. and then come back another day for their abortion.
0: We didn't talk much about judicial bypass in the first episode, and I realize that some people might not understand what these are. What Renee is referring to is a minor consent law. So if you're a minor under 18, you have to have your parents essentially sign off on your decision to have an abortion. And as you can imagine, this is not always possible for a variety of reasons. Either the parents disagree with the decision, the parents may not be around, so there's lots of minors who have difficult family lives, do not have a parent in their life. So for all of these reasons, there needs to be a way for this minor to consent to an abortion via this law, and the way in which they do that is they have to go before a judge and have that judge sign off their paper. So this is a common barrier that anti-abortion advocates have been able to put in place legally in many states, and that's what Renee is talking about when she talks about a judicial bypass. So that minor has to go set up a date to sit down with a judge and be approved to get an abortion. It's a very effective barrier. As you can imagine, if you're traveling from far away, you already are having to deal with, in the case of a minor, taking off from school. You're going to have to add another day to that just to go get your bypass. The stigma is just ramped up. I mean, you have to sit in front of a judge and literally be judged to get this procedure. So a very effective barrier that's in place in many states, including Michigan.
2: We have a 24-hour wait law, but our 24-hour waiting period, the patient can get the information required by the state by coming into the clinic, having it mailed or faxed to her, and she can get it off the internet. If she gets it off the internet, there is a date and time stamp. And the problem that we've run into with that law is that a lot of our patients, their cell phones are their computers, Mm -hmm. and they don't have a printer. So by the time they get to a printer, they may have looked at it way before 24 hours. But by the time they got to a printer and printed it out, the date and time stamp isn't 24 hours, sure. and we can't see them that day.
0: Yeah, so it's um, been printed, like it, when it was printed. When
2: yes, there's a date. Oh, it geez. says on the okay. bottom, it is two o'clock on Monday, whatever date it is, mm-hmm. and you may access an abortion on Tuesday after blah, blah, blah. You know, but it's definitely exactly 24 hours. And sometimes the state website goes down and we're pretty on top of that to call them.
0: So I thought this was really interesting that compared to other states where the woman is forced to come in in person for her counseling, which obviously adds another day, I thought, oh, that's nice. They put it online. But It's a really important point that Renee made about the fact that not everyone has access to a printer. I don't have a printer. Actually, I spent quite a bit of time running around in Office Max recently in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming trying to get things printed. So anyway, it's a struggle. You know, I can understand how that would be a big struggle for people. You know, they got to go to the library, get something printed. It's extra time, extra money. And then I love how she just mentions casually, and sometimes the state website goes down. Like, great. So as if you didn't have enough to worry about, like, sometimes the state website goes down. So, again, a very effective barrier that people have put in place that has nothing to do with, with health care, nothing to do with, like, making this person's experience better or safer or any of that. So Just wanted to point that out. Who owns a printer? Ridiculous. Anyway, there's more.
2: The state scripted information. We have fought with the state for a long time. When the law was first passed, um, this is my favorite. They had a definition of menstruation in there, and it was the sorrowful weeping. Of a disappointed uterus. Oh my God! I don't remember very many quotes, <laughs> but I've told my kids: if that's you bury crazy. me and I have a tombstone, I want that on uh, it. It's. Was
3: that law? Like, well, this
2: was in um, the early '80s. We did get like that stricken, but that is Well, it was from <laughs> a very old textbook, sure,
0: sure. but
2: that's what they were using to create their information. Fortunately, people in the health department. No, I'm going to backtrack. There was a a group from. Rutgers University, who did an evaluation of the state-mandated information all over the country and how many inaccuracies there were, and Michigan's were really high. Hmm. So the, the health department did, in the last year, make an effort to correct some of their information. Not all of it, but it's better than it was. We have a mandatory law to offer the patients the option to view their ultrasound or not. We didn't need the state to give us that law. We have always been upfront with our patients. And if they want to view an ultrasound and have a copy of it, they could have it. Some patients want it and some don't. And it's sort of a non-issue. But I'm pretty sure that with each one of these things that the antis passed, they were like, my God, if we give this this information about what an abortion is like, women won't get an abortion. If we force them to look at an ultrasound or give them the option, they won't get an abortion. A woman who wants an abortion pretty much knows what a baby looks like, pretty much can figure out with a click of a button on the internet, you know, has some idea of what fetal development is like. They treat women as though they're stupid, Mm -hmm. and this is a fetus growing in a Tupperware jar, you know, completely separate from the woman. We also have a coercion law, so we have to screen for coercion, which, once again, we always did on our own. We're not going to do an abortion on a woman against her will. And then we had a trap law that was passed in 2012, that went into effect in April of 2013. It closed a number of clinics. It was a lot of work and a huge expense to get licensed to change absolutely nothing about the way we do abortion care. So, I mean, it cost my clinics $250,000 for nothing. Right. I mean, we had to write more policies. Everything you do had to be written in a policy. How you wash your hands, how you take a drink of water practically how you what you can wipe your hands with um things we were doing that were just part of our practice um, we spent a lot of time and a lot of money writing policies. but because we were one of the first clinics that got licensed, the engineer made me put in a certain kind of sink. It's gigantic. It's really heavy. It took three days to install. The wall had to be reinforced. It's so large that I actually got inside of it once to show that I could fit inside this scrub sink. So the law said you have to have a scrub sink. However, physicians do not need to scrub. So it's completely ridiculous. Those sinks, seven of them, cost $25,000. So as we were getting licensed... Myself and other clinics, we were all forced with raising our fees. So where we used to be able to save the patients some money, this was just covering the cost for a a major fee increase, covering the cost for what it cost us to not only get licensed, but to maintain some of these ridiculous
0: policies. So trap laws, like Renee mentioned, are very, very common across the country. We talked about them a little bit in Indiana. We'll talk about them in states to come, but they basically impose new regulations on clinics that, like Renee said, have nothing to do with health care or making a procedure safer or, you know, more effective or anything like that. Physician organizations have spoken out against these. Uh, these are the same kind of laws that have you know, required clinics to have wider hallways for a certain size beds to get through, um, have required certain kinds of equipment, and like Renee said, things like scrub sinks when these are not needed. These are not necessary. They're not part of abortion care. Very frustrating. Uh, these laws are disguised as, as being safety measures. So lawmakers who pass these who are anti-abortion make it sound like these clinics are unsafe when that just isn't true at all. And these regulations are just a ridiculous waste of money and a barrier for patient care. The last restriction that Renee discussed with me was regarding a ban on the use of private insurance for abortion coverage.
2: I'm a union kid.
0: Uh-huh. You
2: know, my dad worked at Ford Motor Companies and my brothers and sisters and I were out on the picket line with him. So I have always felt that if someone has health insurance and they have an abortion benefits, they should be able to use them here. We used to see at least 50% of our patients using private health insurance. Mm-hmm. And now it's probably about 20%. So
0: that's a pretty significant decrease in access by this one law alone. And what makes this law even more interesting is the way in which it came about in Michigan, which is pretty unique to the state. Initially, back in 2012, when this law was proposed and brought up for a vote, it passed both chambers, but the governor vetoed it. But in Michigan, there's a way via a citizen's initiative that the governor's veto can essentially be overridden. And I spoke with Dr. Rachel Riemann about this.
1: It's not a ballot initiative. It's a legislative mm-hmm. initiative where 4% of the voter turnout the last gubernatorial election So if whoever it is gets enough signatures that equals 4% of the turnout of the last gubernatorial election, which I guess is around 340,000 signatures, they can introduce these petitions or these proposals to to legislature without ever going to the ballot for a full statewide vote.
0: And when these go straight to the legislature, they're voted on? Without uh, the chance for that legislation to be available for the governor to use veto power. It's kind of a crazy thing. I have not heard of other states doing something like this. What's interesting is that. This past year in the Michigan legislature, there was a ban, a method ban proposed that did not pass. So we talked a little bit about method bans during our Indiana episode because one did just pass in Indiana and is now being challenged. And we'll talk about them again because they uh, come up around the country so now there's a anti-abortion group that is gathering signatures to try to use this legislative initiative method to get the method ban passed and turned into law. My understanding is there's also an effort by this group to do the same thing with a quote-unquote heartbeat bill, so a around a six-week ban, essentially. So we'll see what happens with that, uh, but very interesting and powerful and... Uh, disturbing way that a group of people can get legislation through kind of outside of the normal rules of lawmaking as, as we know them in Michigan. So we've talked a lot about the restrictions in place in Michigan and there's a lot of them, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the experiences of providers and folks who work in abortion care. You heard in the very beginning of this episode some audio from when I first drove up to the clinic. There were lots of protesters out, and those protesters are extremely damaging for for patients who have to walk through them, and also for the providers and the folks who work in the clinic every day, who have to face that every day. And they don't just face those people. They face mailings to their home. They face harassment at their home. I got an especially unique perspective from Laura, who is actually Renee's daughter. So they're a mother-daughter team. Uh, Laura, as I mentioned before, is the Director of Advocacy and Development for Northland Family Planning Centers. And she spoke with me a little bit about what it was like to grow up being the daughter of the clinic director.
3: So she opened her first clinic in 1976. I was born in late 1980. And that was the decade of the blockades where they didn't before we had the FACE Act and they would, hundreds of them would come and chain themselves together and block the doors. I woke up every Saturday morning with a babysitter because they'd have to go infiltrate and see what clinic they were going to block that morning. And, you know, it's just been a very interesting life. I remember, I think it was when Dr. Slepian was shot. And she had to she wanted she was leaving to go to the clinics and talk to the staff about things and I wouldn't let go of her leg and I was sobbing because I was convinced that she was gonna be killed too.
0: So it's terrible. I mean these groups they they have killed providers. They threaten providers daily and all of this in the name of some kind of life-saving cause it's very it doesn't make any sense and it's it's very much based on hate these groups are very well funded and have a lot of power because of that so they're funded by the catholic church they're funded by lots of other religious and conservative groups so it's just it's very disturbing and i have a lot of respect for the people who have to face that each day I did talk with Renee some more about this as well, and I think the connection that she makes between this group and other hate groups is especially important for us to understand.
2: One thing to work legislatively, Mm -hmm. to try and overturn a law you don't believe in, but to use the tactics of hateful speech, lies, harassment, intimidation, fear that protesters use against women, against doctors, and against clinic workers is unconscionable. We all get mailings to our homes. Mm -hmm. They let us know that they know where we live. They yell out the names of our kids if they can find them. Mm -hmm. Um, When my children were small, they picketed my home, terrified my children. I worked to get a ban on residential picketing passed that was upheld by the Supreme Court. I, mean, I didn't take it to the Supreme Court. Someone else had. Where you couldn't single out an individual home. You had to, you know, protest like a whole block, you know, have a block. Right. Well, they didn't want to do that. And people in neighborhoods don't want those people in their neighborhood. I mean, they, they did more to hurt themselves mm-hmm. when, they, when they went to residences. Although they still do that in some areas. Once again, to try and make a doctor feel unsafe for their children and their the rest of their family, and themselves. This wouldn't be tolerated anyplace else. I mean, we we are a country founded on free speech, but hate speech and rhetoric that can lead to violence is why we're seeing mass shootings. It's why we've seen abortion providers murdered. It's why we've seen clinics bombed and arsoned. If we had politicians who had the guts to stand up and protect people, you don't have to like abortion, but hate speech is not okay. And I notice whenever there's clinic violence, from the beginning, religious people do not come out and speak against it. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And we wonder why kids have thought it's okay to target certain individuals, kids that bully them kids that are different than them, because you can't look at the internet without finding horrible, horrible things about abortion providers that have been not only allowed to happen, but accepted because it's abortion. So if it's accepted for one group, why would any kid grow up thinking it wouldn't be accepted for another?
0: This connection that Renee has made between anti-abortion groups, and other types of hate speech, other types of hate groups, is extremely important. I think especially right now, as we see increases in mass shootings, as we see increases in hate speech, normalizing the idea of racism, of sexism. And this connects back to the topic we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, this idea of reproductive justice, that all of these systems of oppression are connected to one another. I think it's important that we point out that these ideas extend and encompass the idea of race. So this idea that the hate speech against abortion providers and the hate and fear around the anti-abortion movement is connected and influence white supremacy. Having said that, accessing abortion and the hate speech around abortion is especially difficult for women of color who may also face race-based hate speech, when, when they go to seek abortion services. And I talked with Dr. Razel Riemann about this. At our clinic in Northland, we
1: often have, we recently started getting uh, black protesters.
0: That again is Dr. Razel Riemann. And for the purposes of this clip, I think it's important for you to know that she is an African American woman. And she commented to me about some of the racially motivated attacks that she received and that her patients receive at the clinic.
1: And they walk around carrying signs saying black genocide and you know so on and so forth and recently have these two black male protesters that are very big very muscular and very aggressive and they make signs to me like very aggressive signs to me as I walk in mm. you know I've got my eye on you and put me kind of semi-threatening I'm not I'm not really impressed <laughs> yeah, I mean like <laughs> I've, I've seen, seen, seen that <laughs> so I'm not i'm not I'm not particularly impressed, you know? right, <laughs> so I mean it does bother me when they start talking about black genocide because my patients start coming in and they cry and they cry over this they feel like they're they this black genocide' real, and they feel like that that they are somehow contributing to this, and so I often talk to them and you know talk to them about poverty and say, no, this is what really is contributing to black genocide, poverty the prison-industrial complex, you know, these are things that contribute to it, not you having abortion.
0: The anti-abortion movement has been using the the real term black genocide for their own devices and as a tool for many years now. Like Dr. Riemann mentioned, black genocide is a real phenomenon and The causes for this are based on things like the prison industrial complex and institutionalized racism and certainly not on someone's personal decision to have or not have an abortion. Back in 2010, there was a well-publicized billboard campaign in Atlanta that featured a black woman and her child and featured the words, black children are an endangered species. And at the bottom, there was a link to too many aborted.com. And this was a an effort by the anti-abortion community to blame black women for black genocide, which, as we mentioned, has very different causes that have nothing to do with a reason to choose to terminate or to not terminate a pregnancy. And ironically, the the real causes of black genocide, the real causes of institutionalized racism in this country have their roots in white supremacy that is often also perpetuated and promoted by these anti-abortion folks. So let me just head this off before I hear the complaint. I'm not accusing everyone who holds a quote-unquote pro-life view or everyone who thinks that abortion is personally wrong for them. I'm not calling you all racist, but you know, prove me wrong. Uh, Don't spout hate speech. Don't harass patients. I think it's totally possible, and we said this at the beginning of the podcast, to personally hold the belief that you yourself do not want an abortion and even that you think it's wrong for other people to get an abortion. What's not okay is for you to decide that you can legislate that opinion and for you to spout hateful, fear-mongering speech to people because of your opinion. I would refer you again to some of these great resources that exist. Again, like this podcast, not only am I not an expert in this, we don't have time to cover the whole history of reproduction and racism in the United States, but there there is a really important history there of forced sterilization and of coercion and of autonomy being taken away when it comes to reproductive decision making, and I think we all need to understand that that in communities of color, reproductive autonomy it carries a weight that that doesn't exist for the white community. And again brings us full circle back to this idea of reproductive justice, that it's not just about whether or not you can access an abortion. It's about whether or not you're able to make decisions about your reproduction. So do you want to have a child, do you not want to have a child? Can you raise that child in a safe and nurturing environment? And that's what we are all fighting for. So we discussed that abortion access in Michigan does have a fair amount of limitations. I talked with Renee again about what she thinks will happen in Michigan if Roe v. Wade is overturned in the next Supreme Court session.
2: If if the Supreme Court guts Roe, we don't know. It, we'll, have, we'll have to see. If it flat out overturns Roe, um, Michigan has a 1931 law in the book that – Makes it illegal to provide an abortion. It, there are, I mean, and that will that it, that law is still there, and that will go into effect immediately. Yeah. So we will not be able to
0: provide abortions. Wow. One thing we haven't talked about yet are these dormant laws that some states have on the books, and Michigan is one of them. Where if Roe v. Wade is overturned, they'll revert back to these old laws, many of them from the early 20th century that completely restrict abortion. Where do you think women in Michigan will go? Is Chicago probably the well, most likely? Illinois
2: right now is considered a haven state.
0: Okay.
2: New York, Illinois, Iowa, but I don't know how long that'll last. Kansas, actually a recent Kansas decision said their state constitution protects abortion. And I, my I, my understanding is there's going to be something on the ballot that says the state constitution protects privacy. Except for the right to abortion, so we don't know what will happen there. California, Washington State, I think New Mexico. I mean, there will be a handful of states, but what we will find is a really motivated anti-abortion movement to target those states and really target providers. All their energies will, I mean, we're going to have a civil war over abortion. First, we're gonna have a public health crisis because women are not going to stop having abortions. So that's going to be happening everywhere, even in the states that are haven states because they don't have the capacity to take care of women from all over the country. And women who don't have the means to travel are not just gonna say, fine, I'll have a baby. Some of them will. And what we'll see is swelling in welfare rolls neglect and some abuse or abandonment and we'll see some women resort to whatever they whatever means they can find available to them to try and end a pregnancy so one way or the other we'll end up with a public health crisis but then we're going to see a civil war in those haven states i hope the supreme court is wise enough to look at the at overturning a 50-year precedent of women's health care it's it's going to be a disaster
0: so with the anti-abortion opponents being so hateful and so aggressive that can be really disheartening you know when we can't seem to win at the legislative level that can be disheartening i talked more with laura who, as I mentioned before, is the Director of Advocacy and Development for the Northland Family Planning Center. I've talked with her some more about the work that she does and what gives her hope. I think
3: what I've learned in my work in the past couple of years, especially, is that the local conversations that you have with neighbors and people that you assume, um, like, for instance, if you live in northern Oakland County, which was typically very red, it's changing and people are talking more and opening up. You need to be able to be brave enough and vulnerable enough to have the conversation with the neighbor and you'll be surprised at how many people you can connect with on that level. I think those conversations are important. I think it's important to talk about the fact that it's really not about abortion, but it's about being able to make the decision for somebody else, what they do and what affects their life when you're not living it. I think that's a really important point that can really get away from the the fetus fetish of of the anti's and really talk about, you know, people's realities and their access to education. I mean, they're all intertwined, all these issues, their financial circumstances. Having these conversations on a one-on-one level can be less intimidating, and also I always thought the idea of house parties was silly before, but after hosting a few of them and being invited to come speak to just different people's houses who invited people who wanted to understand more about it, on that really intimate level of about twenty to twenty five people, you can really have some great conversations and people feel safe to ask questions mm-hmm. that they may not know the answers to and to really have those those real conversations and help people with information and to understand what this is really what what's really happening. Escorting is another way, supporting local clinics and I mean truly The ones who are making these laws and passing them are the ones in the legislature, and we really need to be careful. I think um, one thing I like to talk to people about is that even on a very local level, when someone's running for school board, those are entry-level positions into higher office. They may not be voting on abortion today, but they affect sex education sometimes. I mean, different issues that all lead to family planning and abortion and birth control, and We need to be talking and asking them if they're running and they want our vote, how they feel about these issues because it's important to know early on city council. They can help with how things are legislated with, for instance, harassment outside medical facilities. These may be things that we want to deal with in the future with them, and so we need to know how they feel now. So finding those things out, even if they're not just the state rep or the state senator, and making sure that you engage your communities in voting too.
0: So whether that's having a conversation with your neighbor, holding our elected officials at every level, even the local level, perhaps most importantly the local level, accountable, I really thought it was important what Laura had to say about our city council and using that as a conduit to get protection against harassment passed for our local clinics. I think that's a very tangible thing that advocates can work on and a way to get to know your city council too and then working on things like gerrymandering something I talked with Dr. Riemann about making sure that votes count and that people get out to vote because even the smallest most local position matters.
1: I look a lot at even the political process and the political candidates who they focus on targeting who they focus on You know, when they start campaigning, who they focus on, they really like ignore areas like Detroit and Flint and just areas that are poor and being of color. And I think that, uh, first of all, it's not right. And second of all, it's a big mistake on their part. Detroit holds the largest population mass in the state and last election, Trump, I'm saying quotes, won. Michigan by 10,000 votes. He didn't really win it because 75,000 votes were thrown out, coming from mostly Dearborn, which is mostly Middle Eastern, and we know that we're not going to vote for him, in right. Detroit, which is mostly Black. But compared to 2012 versus the 2016 election, there's a 20% voter turnout in Detroit and a 10% voter turnout in 2016. That's the difference of 160,000 votes. So if they had been focusing more heavily on Detroit and gotten voter turnout on Detroit, he could not have won Michigan at all. And I think that people often overlook that because they see these communities as being poor and disengaged and uneducated and all the rest. I specifically want to really focus on getting community engagement within Detroit. And there are a lot of issues that, that tie into reproductive rights that need to be focused on. I don't look at reproductive rights as being this separate issue. I look at it as being part of a larger social issue of oppression and justice.
0: And I feel like that's a great note for us to end on today. So I hope that this episode has helped you learn something about reproductive justice. I hope it's helped you learn something about Michigan And thanks so much to all the folks I was able to interview for this episode, Renee Chillian, Laura Chillian, and Dr. Rachel Riemann. Theme music for this episode has been provided by David Hyde. You can find his information in the show notes. If you feel compelled to make a donation after listening to this podcast, I would highly recommend the organization The Reclaim Project. This is the advocacy arm of the Northland Family Planning Clinics. Their mission is to fuel individuals and communities to reclaim their dignity around, confidence in, and support of abortion and reproductive rights. I will post their link in the show notes, and you can make a donation to them and to their abortion fund, which helps patients get access to abortion in the Detroit area. I'm headed west for our next episode, so I talked with lots of advocates and providers from North Dakota, so we'll get to hear from that next. We'll catch you next time.